15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, once again, thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 201. And thank you to all those people who sent us good wishes about achieving 200 episodes. The three of you must have listened intently to know that it was our 200th episode. Uh, we <laughs> we do appreciate the, the feedback here. A few people uh, on various platforms um, sent us some nice notes. Joining me as always uh, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? Good to, I'm good to hear your, your strident voice again. Thank you, sir. Yes, good to hear yours too. Uh, and um, I hope you're well. Uh, still, still in isolation, I assume. Yeah, that's right. But all going well. We're, um, you know, just working from home, uh, carrying on, carrying on, as you do. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely true. And uh, I, I, well, we're starting to see the um, the rules um, being relaxed in New South Wales, so people are starting to venture out. I think there's uh, most people are being very cautious, but uh, a lot of people taking advantage of the new opportunity to uh, visit family and friends on a very, very limited basis and maintain social distancing, et cetera. But, um, yeah, it looks like uh, whatever we've done to curtail the spread of this disease has worked very well in Australia, which is, um, you know, you've got to tip your hat to the authorities. I know it was a hard sell, but uh, pe- most people have taken notice and we've um, we've got ourselves down to less than a 1,000 active cases in the country now, which is just fantastic. Indeed it is. And uh, fingers crossed that we'll keep going in that direction. And, you know, our thoughts are always with people in other parts of the world where things aren't going anywhere near as well. Yeah, I, I was looking at the statistics in the United States today and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gobsmacked, to be honest. I, I don't want to dwell on that, but, uh, gee, uh, some of those um, states in America are really in a bad way at the moment. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's different for every country, different rules, different systems, different capabilities seem to uh, really be a factor as well. But um, here we are uh, doing what we can to try and stem the tide. Now, Fred, we are going to talk about uh, quite a few exciting um, situations that have arisen, uh, one of which uh, we've only been able to talk about now because it's been the subject of an embargo, and that's the European Southern Observatory's major announcement about a black hole. Now, you and I can talk about this uh, because it's post-embargo, but uh, this is this has been sort of kept top secret right up to Wednesday night, which has been um, rather extraordinary. Uh, and uh, another fascinating yarn has to do with the ice moon of Europa, which orbits Jupiter. And we had a space probe out there 20-odd years ago taking um, selfies uh, of, uh, of Europa and Jupiter and everything else that sort of floats around out there. It's 20-year-old data, but now we've been able to use uh, up-to-date technology to take another look at it, and I'm guessing they've found some interesting things. Uh, speaking of Europa, we've had a, a question from Adrian Crawford who um, has asked a specific question about Europa, so that'll dovetail well, and Monique wants to talk about mining on the moon. Uh, the moon's been in the news this week. Uh, so many different countries certainly want to go back there. Uh, trouble with the moon is nobody owns it, and so this is going to turn into a scrum, I reckon. So we'll uh, we'll look at all those issues today on the Space Nuts podcast. But first, this uh, very exciting announcement by the Euros- uh, European Southern Observatory about a black hole which, as I understand it, turns out to be the nearest one to Earth, and it's not Sagittarius A. Exactly. That's right. Sagittarius A, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy, that's 25-ish thousand light years away. Uh, uh, You know, uh, we see it in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius, uh, but it's behind all the dust and, and murk out there, but can be detected by radio waves, which is why it's called Sagittarius A star. That's the name of the radio source. So... This is a different story altogether, and it kind of has echoes, Andrew, of something we were talking about probably about three or four weeks ago. The idea that there might be many black holes out there which don't reveal themselves by anything other than the way they disturb the orbits of stars nearby. 
in mm. other words, they don't have an accretion disk of swirling material that's plummeting into them uh, and causing X-rays and radio waves to be emitted. <clears throat> They're just quiet, um, quiescent is perhaps the technical word, black holes sitting there doing nothing but minding their own business, but actually having a gravitational effect on nearby stars. And that is exactly, <clears throat> excuse me, that's exactly what this story is about. It comes from the European Southern Observatory, and actually, this discovery was not made with one of their giant 8.2-metre telescopes of the, the VLT, the Very Large Telescope. It's actually um, one of the smaller ones, a 2.2-metre telescope at La Silla, which is one of the two main observatory sites that the European Southern Observatory runs in Chile. <clears throat> so astronomers using that telescope have been analysing the motions of a, a star system, which is only... A thousand light years away. It's basically um, in our galactic neighbourhood, uh, and um, you know, easy easy to see. In fact, this star system can be seen with the naked eye. Uh, it's in the Southern Hemisphere constellation of Telescopium, the telescope, which is all ah. very appropriate. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I think it's um, scientists uh, in the Czech Republic and at the European Southern Observatory itself who've done this this work. Um, and the, the really nice part of the story is that it all came as a surprise to the uh, to the to the investigators. Um, one of the scientists says, "We were totally surprised when we realised that this is the first stellar system with a black hole that can be seen with the unaided eye." Um, and that's yeah, that's big news. So what we got here, we've got uh, this star. Um, whose name is HR6819, um, very elegant name really for it, but it's uh, it's a double star, okay? So that means um, a binary system, one star orbiting another. Yeah. And um, this program that these scientists were working on was a study of double star systems. But what they were uh, amazed to find was that their observations demonstrated that this was not just a double star, not just a binary pair going around the common centre of gravity, that there is something else in the system. Um, and basically, one of the two visible stars orbits an object that is not seen every 40 days. Uh, and actually, the second star kind of orbits at a much greater distance from, from this inner pair. So mm. what, you've, what you've got is a mystery here. We've got this uh, two stars, one of which is orbiting the other, but the one of them is actually orbiting something else as well, uh, and that's the invisible bit. So um, uh, another of the co-authors... Uh, um, uh, actually, uh, Dietrich Wader, who's at um, ESO, uh, he says the observations needed to determine the period of 40 days had to be spread over several months. This was only possible thanks to ESO's pioneering service observing scheme under which observ observations are made by ESO staff on behalf of the scientists needing them. That's a, a mode of operation that actually many astro uh, astronomers in our country, in Australia, have used since uh, three years ago we, we became um, a strategic partner of the European Southern Observatory. So that uh, service mode observing means that if you know you need observations over a long period of time, you can't go and spend two years sitting in in La Silla in northern Chile. So you get the local staff there to do the observations for you, and that's how that this has been brought about. So the um, the 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 bottom line, Andrew, is and once again here's a quote from one of the co-authors: an invisible object with a mass of at least four times that of the sun, which is what this had to be, uh, it can only be a black hole. It can't be anything else. And so, and so uh, that uh, is the smoking gun. Uh, the orbit of this, uh, the, 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 the nearer star to the black hole of this pair, spinning around once every 40 days, uh, around something four times as massive as the sun, has to be a black hole, and it is the nearest. And the conclusion is a really interesting one uh, because um, let me read the, from the ESO uh, press release, if I can, Andrew. Astronomers have, have spotted only a couple of dozen black holes in our galaxy to date, nearly all yeah. of which 
strongly interact with their environment and make their presence known by releasing powerful X-rays. But scientists estimate that over the Milky Way's lifetime, many more stars collapsed into black holes as they ended their lives. The discovery of a silent, invisible black hole in HR 6819 provides clues about where the many hidden black holes in the Milky Way might be. There must be hundreds of millions of black holes out there, but we know about only very few. Knowing what to look for should put us in a better position to find them. And this so might this be... isn't... Sorry, go well, on. Yeah, just to say, it might be the tip of a very exciting iceberg. This could be the first of, of, of many that are found by this technique. So this is not only the discovery of the nearest black hole to Earth, it's also the discovery of a way of finding them because of the way we found this one. Is that what they're saying? That's exactly right. Yes, ah, that's right. In fact... That's a- Sorry, go on. Go on I was going to say that's a giant leap forward, really. It is, it is a giant leap forward. I mean, we actually talked about something similar to this uh, probably uh, four or five months ago, uh, another similar discovery. Uh, but I think this one is the one that really clinches it, um, that we've got this way of, of discovering black holes by looking closely <clears throat> at the way stars, <clears throat> excuse me, stars in binary systems uh, actually orbit. It's a very powerful technique, and I think you and I will be talking about it a lot more over the years. Yes, I, I, I'm uh, surprised they've only found you know a dozen or so in our um, immediate vicinity over the years. But as we have discussed, these things are very elusive. But it now seems that they've um, they've revealed to us a way of of now finding them, and we we may be finding them in their hundreds or thousands in into the future. Uh, we, we've also talked in the past about uh, the size of black holes. Uh, I think you did uh, allude to the um, uh, the size of this one, but just um, give us a reminder. How, how big is this one, did you say? Yeah, four times the mass of the sun. So, okay, and, and where does that sort of sit in the black hole sizing chart? <laughs> It is, Andrew, and remember where you heard this first, it is a standard black hole. <laughs> that is, so we haven't really had a definition for them, have we? Uh, in, no, in, real time? in the trade, in the world of astronomy, we refer to them as stellar mass black holes because their right. mass is about the same as a star. And, you know, you and I again have talked about this before. We find black holes in basically two different categories, stellar mass black holes kind of like this, maybe up to 10 or 22 times the mass of the sun and the supermassive black holes which are up to 10 or 20 billion times the mass of the sun so uh, and and very little in between and um, finding new objects in between is another of the challenges what you might call intermediate mass black holes because they must be out there Um, and we we think that they lurk principally in the centers of globular clusters Uh, Mm. those things that are probably the, the remnants of galaxies that have been gobbled up by bigger galaxies like the Milky Way. So uh, there's, there's a, there is a picture building up here, but um, giving astronomers a method of finding stellar mass black holes uh, that are not active, that they're not emitting X-rays because of their accretion disks, that's a really powerful step forward. And it comes about, I have to say, once again, because of the science of spectroscopy, you're looking for that Doppler wobble, the the thing that reveals planets around stars, the idea that a planet pulls a star slightly backwards and forwards uh, and reveals the presence of the planet. The Doppler wobble technique in use since 1995. Uh, but the, um, the this is an extension of that in a way. It's a kind of Doppler wobble technique, but for things much bigger than planets, for black holes. So it's a very powerful way of finding them. Yeah, we, we ought to um, submit a, a, a paper or a um, an application or whatever it is we do to um, whoever is in charge of um, naming objects and suggest that these be called standard mass black holes. We ought to do yeah, that. They... I, we do, should... do, do we know an astronomer who's got contacts that might be able to do that, Fred? Uh... Uh, yes, me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to suggest that. Um, this, this would be the um, uh, International Astronomical Union, wouldn't it? We'd have it to go exactly to them. Yeah, and they would say, well, that's very nice, but we've already got a name for them. We call them stellar mass black holes. Yeah, um, that so doesn't tell you much, I though. Think, <laughs> no, I think I think as far as Space Nuts is concerned, they're standard black holes, Andrew. We'll call them a standard black hole from here on, if, if we yeah, remember like to do so. Dream. 
Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yes, but that varies from country to country too. Yeah, mm. All right, this is fabulous news. So uh, yeah, there'll be a heck of a lot more to learn, and uh, this is probably going to get some chins wagging for a little while. Uh, finding a um, a standard black hole so close to Earth, and did you say it was um, observable with the naked eye? Was that what I heard? Yeah, that's right. It's an, uh, visible to the naked eye. Um, I don't have a note of its exact magnitude, which is the technical term used for the brightness of stars. Uh, it's certainly, um, you know, it's probably about fifth or sixth magnitude, which is um, around about the, uh, you know, the limit of visibility with the naked eye, maybe fifth magnitude. Um, these, so would this be a good candidate for um, a photograph? Oh, yeah, there'll be many of those. <laughs> but, of course, all it shows up as in a photograph is a single point of light um, because mm. it is a, it, it, you don't see any of this structure, the binary structure of it, because that's only revealed by the, the, the fact that you can watch the way the stars move around with a spectrograph, the, the checking their radio velocities, as we call it. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the, this uh, star, it will be in any image taken of that part of the sky um, with, a, you know, with modern digital cameras, uh, and it'll be, it'll be quite bright because it's a naked eye star, but it won't show anything different about it uh, to, to, you know, to the casual looker it's only when you start analyzing the motion of the component stars that you realize that there is something very very special locked up in this yeah all right uh it is hr6819 remember that write it down remember that number <laughs> it's uh it's a yeah, a wonderful discovery, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about it again real soon. You're listening to Space Nuts with your host, Andrew Dunkley, and the good professor, Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Once again, shouting out to our patrons who support uh, the Space Nuts podcast with a few dollars a month uh, into the kitty. We appreciate your support and uh, we greatly encourage it too, but it's not mandatory. But if you would like to investigate the possibility of being a patron, you can do so on the Patreon website, patreon.com slash space nuts. And if you think that's something you'd like to do, great. If not, that's fine too. We are not going to hold a gun to your head or a stellar mass black hole or anything like that. Uh, Patreon <laughs> or a standard black hole. Uh, Patreon.com slash Space Nuts. Um, and, and we would like to thank those of you who are chipping in to, um, to keep this podcast alive and well. We greatly appreciate your support. Now, Fred, let's move on to the next topic of interest. And this one is very interesting too because this dates back 20-odd years when Galileo was hanging around Jupiter chewing the fat, taking a few pics, and uh, they did take photographs of uh, Europa, the ice moon. Uh, but here we are 20 years later or thereabouts, and they've reanalyzed some of the data because, you know, the uh, photographic technology uh, we have today is much more advanced. And I'm guessing, voila, they've come up with a little bit more detail about this amazing little world. Indeed, that's right. And so th this is not accidental. You know, it's not just people saying, oh, we'll go and have another look at those data from, uh, from, uh, from Galileo. This is all about preparing for the next missions to Jupiter, uh, Jupiter's moons. Um, there is one called the Europa Clipper, which I think is now approved. Uh, I need to check that uh, it, within the next few years. There's another mission called JUICE, the Jupiter Icy Moons uh, probe, which I think is also uh, on the stock. I, lo I love the name of that one. Juice, yeah, right. Juice, yeah. <laughs> <Jupiter icy> moons. <laughs> um, uh, so these are missions that will give us much more detail about the icy moons, and of course, um, as as is well known, and it relates to the question that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Uh, Europa is one of the moons of the outer solar system that has this uh, structure with a, a, a rocky core, a liquid water ocean over the top of it, and then over the top of that, a solid ice crust. Um, Europa is special in that the ice crust is probably one of the youngest surfaces in the entire solar system. Um, it's uh, estimated to be between 40 
and 90 million years old. Now, that sounds like a long time, but uh, that for a, for a planetary surface or a, a, a surface of a, a world like Europa is very, very young. Um, the, the, the cratered surface of the, of the moon, for example, the, the southern hemisphere of the moon, which is heavily cratered, is more like three to four, three, well, more like 3.8 to 4.2 uh, billion years old. It dates from a time when uh, objects were hurling through the solar system and bashing into everything, uh, what is called the late heavy bombardment. So uh, the, the surface of Europa is not like that at all. In fact, there, is no, there are no discernible craters on it. But what there are is other markings. And the, the classic uh, Galileo spacecraft images from 1998 uh, show these... Uh, basically, they show a surface that is crisscrossed by brownish markings, many of them very linear. Um, and those markings... Uh, you know, in the original images, it's not really possible to distinguish what you're seeing. They just look like brown markings. Now, that brown colour is thought to be what happens when you've got a briny liquid, uh, like, you know, almost like seawater, uh, filtering up through the ocean beneath and then being irradiated by the sun's radiation. Um, experiments were done a few years ago that showed that if you've, if you've got um, water that's rich in salts and minerals and you irradiate it with ultraviolet light and the kind of um, particle bombardment we get from the sun, it turns brown, uh, just like these, these streaks. So, but th those original images didn't really show much detail. And that's why this is such a great story, because these... Uh, what we're talking about today is a, re a, a reanalysis of those images by a team uh, actually at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, I think led by I think uh, planetary geologist Cynthia Phillips, um, and that is you know um, a, a fantastic project to bring modern computer. Uh, algorithms to bear on images that we looked at and said, yeah, they're great, fantastic stuff, and then put away for 22 years. Uh, and what they've done is they've shown that the terrain on Europa is not just uh, an ice covering with a few black brown streaks on it. It's got hmm. all kinds of variations in it. So uh, the resolution's quite fine, uh, revealing things as small as... Uh, 460 metres across, uh, thereabouts. Um, and they are, the detail is now, I think, quite staggering. There is on the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, website, there are some of the reprocessed images. And there are three different kinds of terrain that have been identified, which weren't really recognised before. Uh, and I guess the first is what's called the chaos terrain. And that sort of tells it like it is. Uh, it's like just lumps of solid material, uh, often coloured brown, uh, with, which looks just like you've taken a, a liquid filled, uh, you know, take a, a glass bowl, fill it with ice crystals, uh, which kind of then and then put it in the fridge so they all partly freeze over and then so, sort of stir it up so these these sorry ice cubes rather than ice crystals that they all tumble all around. We've seen something similar, Andrew, on on the dwarf planet Pluto. Yeah. Uh, right at the edge of Sputnik Planum, there's this exactly this same terrain, and the mission scientists for the New Europa projects think that this chaos this chaos terrain on uh, Europa comes about because of exactly that, that the surface is being fractured, uh, uh, remembering that there are tidal forces from the planet itself that are pushing and pulling this surface. And you get the stuff breaking up into relatively small chunks, which are then tipped around just like these ice cubes and giving this uh, essentially what's called chaos terrain. Mm. Two, two more different uh, features have been recognised. Um, both really interesting and similar in that they're both long linear features, maybe a few kilometres wide, a uh, few tens of metres high, uh, the ridges anyway, a few tens of metres high, but, <clears throat> but thousands of kilometres long. So the two different things are ridges, which is where, as I've just um, uh, explained, you've got a long uh, ridge of material, uh, just a few tens of metres. I think they were talking about 
100 metres or so high, um, which uh, are probably brought about when two kind of plates of ice compress together. And so you get a pushing up of the material as they collide. Uh, remembering that this surface is kind of in motion all the time. Yeah. And that contrasts with what they call bands, not rock bands or anything like that, but <laughs> bands of a different colour. Uh, these are the opposite. These are, look as though they're where two plates of ice have stretched apart and ice has grown in between them because what you've got is um, a, a broad region, it's probably ten, tens of kilometres wide, which uh, is very, very smooth with a kind of ridge on either side of it. It's a bit hard to explain these or to describe these in words, but it's worth having a look at the pictures, the, uh, the, the, the reprocessed images of Europa, which is the buzzword to put into the Jet Propulsion Laboratories uh, website, uh, jpl.nasa.gov. Okay. How big is Europa? Uh, it is bigger than our moon, if I remember rightly. It's not the biggest of the Galilean moons. I don't have the, the number of kilometres uh, off the top of my head. It's very easy to find. The biggest of Galileo's, uh, of the moons of Jupiter, actually, the biggest moon in the solar system is Ganymede. Uh, but, the, but Galileo himself, not the spacecraft, the astronomer, discovered these four large moons, uh, Ganymede, Europa, Callisto, and Io. Uh, Io is the smallest, Ganymede is the biggest. So mm. there you are. <laughs> Europa is between Ganymede and Io. <laughs> and uh, the, the beauty of them is that uh, if you've got, you know, a half-decent um, pair of binoculars or a half-decent telescope, you can... You can actually see these um, from your backyard. I, th I, th I think I remember um, years and years ago being able to do that um, because uh, I, I can't remember the circumstances, but um, Jupiter must have been in a good position for us to observe and um, got some amazing photos of yeah. um, of the moons um, orbiting yeah. Jupiter with the naked eye. And, you know, that's just such an amazing thing to be able to see from such a vast distance. The, so Jupiter's coming up uh, to be very favourable now um, for uh, observing with small telescopes and binoculars. It's rising late in the evening and it'll sort of rise earlier until eventually it's what we call opposition where it's in the sky all night and it's, that's it kind of at its closest. Um, but yeah, binoculars just about show Jupiter as a disk. You really need the higher power end, which is like 10 power 10 magnification or thereabouts. Mm. The problem with those is holding them steady. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you can fix them on something. But they would sh um, sh potentially show you the moons of Jupiter. Uh, a small telescope is much better, and especially if it's fixed on a on a stand or something. Mm. Then you can see, you can really see the uh, from night to night the way these moons change in position, which, of course, is what Galileo noticed early in 1610 and set the cut among the pigeons because it was clear that not everything rotated around the earth. Yes. Around the earth. And but didn't he get into trouble for that one? He did. He got into trouble, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so we, we've reanalysed the data and we've made all these discoveries and we've got much more detail about Europa. I, I think it would probably be a good idea to just dovetail straight into the question we have about Europa yeah, that's, from uh, that's great. Adrian Crawford. Adrian writes, hello, Space Nuts. I uh, had a question I didn't know if you wanted to answer. No, we don't want to answer anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, is an ocean planet possible? Well, we actually tackled that a week or two ago. So we've, we've answered the question. Uh, and I think I remember you saying, Fred, that the Earth was, in fact, an ocean planet at one stage. Uh, but then he goes on to ask, is it possible that there is ocean life on Europa, Jupiter's moon? I was just curious if you guys uh, knew the answer to my questions. Uh, just want to say that I really enjoy listening to your podcast and I hope you continue on, your, on with your awesome work. Thank you, Adrian. That's lovely of you to say. Uh, so, um, yeah, Fred, do you, um, do you think that Europa... Uh, I think has been identified as a, um, a very potential uh, candidate for containing life, as has Enceladus, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, exactly. So, well, uh, yeah, I, I think the answer to the question is yes, but I, I think we ought to elaborate a bit more on that. Yeah, no, and it's, it is a great question, and you're absolutely right, Andrew, in that this is perhaps uh, – one, Europa is certainly up there among the top two or three candidates for um, 
finding living organisms elsewhere in the solar system. The problem is, how do you find them? Uh, because if you've got a global ocean with a global ice layer on top, which might be 20 or 30 kilometers thick, you do have to worry about how you might probe down to find out what's going on. Well, first thing you do is you rent a space trawler. You, need, you certainly need that. Yes. <laughs> and maybe a space icebreaker as yeah, well. Yeah, probably. Uh, you know, there, there are ethical questions. You don't really want to go and smash up the ice on Europa. Um, the, the Europa, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering correctly, uh, has shown evidence of plumes of ice coming from the surface, exactly as we've seen with Enceladus, the, the moon of Jupiter. And, of course, the Cassini spacecraft uh, flew through the plumes yeah. of ice uh, and um, told us what's in it uh, and revealed all kinds of very intriguing things, molecular hydrogen, which suggests that... Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the water has been in contact with geothermal vents at the bottom of this ocean. Um, there, are, you know, there are minerals in it, all kinds of organic materials, all of which suggests that certainly for Enceladus, uh, there may be processes in place that would give rise to living organisms um, in the bottom of the ocean, uh, a bit like the, 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 the hydrothermal vents we find here on Earth. Mm. And so um, knowing that... Europa has a very similar structure to Enceladus. It's actually nearer to the sun, so it's a little bit warmer, uh, although the surface is still in the minus 150s, I think, or something like that, <clears throat> 160s. Um, the, uh, the, it, it does suggest that maybe um, the, there is potential for finding living organisms uh, in the oceans of Europa. And one way of doing that would be to do Kind of what Cassini has done on uh, on Enceladus uh, to send a spacecraft, and I, I think the um, uh, the Europa Clipper, I think, is designed to do this to orbit the uh, moon of Europa and actually fly through plumes of material being released from Europa's uh, poles um, and uh, analyze that. Because what you've got there is a, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a free sample of the yeah. ocean. Yes, it's frozen, it's just ice crystals. But if you can analyze those ice crystals, you can find out all kinds of things about the environment that they came from. And, and save maybe... a lot of money on an, on an icebreaker, which you won't need. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> exactly. Although, um, remembering my conversation with um, Linda Spilker, who's the, who was the Cassini mission scientist, uh, I talked to her last year because she was over to give some talks uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, she's working on something called um, EELS, which is an Enceladus. I'm not sure what it stands for, but it's basically a thing shaped like a snake uh, which is robotic, and you drop it on the surface of Enceladus, and it finds its way down the cracks <clears throat> in Enceladus's ice, and has a look in the ocean of Enceladus to see what's down there. Maybe you could do something yeah. uh, with Europa that's similar. Call it. That's a great um, idea. Yeah. So that, I think one of the reasons why people are concentrating on Europa at the moment is it's much nearer uh, than Enceladus. Uh, it's a much a quicker journey to get from Earth to Jupiter than it is to get from Earth to Saturn. And so we'll, we might find results coming sooner, although, of course, there are plans to, to revisit uh, Enceladus and have a look there as to what's going on too. Mm, okay, it is interesting. Uh, are you confident that there, there could be life in the waters of, um, of Europa? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> I think I've done. I've, I think I've done this to you two weeks running now. No, it's all right. It's okay. Look, I, yeah, I think there's a really good chance that we'll find stuff that that might be quite different from what we what we have here on Earth, but would still be classified as living organisms. I, I think it's unlikely that we will find fish or you know um, crabs, shrimp, shrimp, brine, nothing. <laughs> Prawns. <laughs> I had prawns for dinner last night. Prawns, but, yeah. Um, the, I, I, but the idea of microbial life, my guess is that we're going to find within the next decade that, yes, microbial life does exist elsewhere in the universe, uh, <clears throat> simply because all the, all the signs point to that, but we haven't found it yet. Yeah, so the Drake equation will, you know, change if we find life on another 
world beyond our own. So um, just in case someone brings that back up again. Yes. Uh, when, when, when's Europa Clipper due to get there? Um, I don't know. And I don't know whether they've even got a launch date yet. Um, the uh, I, I need to check up on that. Let me see if I can do that now, Andrew, just to give you an answer to your question. Yeah, um, I was going to look into it as well. And um, yeah, yeah I'd, 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 let, let's let's take that on notice and uh, talk see about. See if we can find out for a future date. Yeah. Mm, all right. Um, but uh, yes, uh, Adrian. Um, yeah, the potential does exist for life on Europa, uh, the ice moon of Jupiter, and potentially Enceladus as well. Uh, and just as a final sort of statement on this, Fred, uh, are there any other life candidates in our solar system? Well, the other one, apart from the two we've mentioned, uh, the other really strong candidate is Titan. I thought so. Um, uh, the yeah, yeah, you knew what I was going to say there. Yeah. Um, the the biggest moon of uh, Saturn, uh, the only moon in the whole solar system with a thick atmosphere, and this curious, you know, landscape of of lakes and seas made of liquid natural gas with rocks that are made of water ice. But once again, there is an ocean underneath that water ice. Um, so uh, the, 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 all bets are off with that. You could find anything on Titan. You could find microbial life that lives at minus 190 Celsius in a lake of, of liquid natural gas um, that breathes hydrogen and eats acetylene. That's one of the things that's been proposed. Mm. Um, that would be extraordinary, just extraordinary. A, a non-water-based life form. Yeah, and again, we uh, want to do uh, potentially some sort of test to see if uh, it exists in the same plane as life on Earth, or if it's a totally independent and self-evolving entity. Um, that that's you know, let's let's just go two leaps ahead. We've we've already discovered life beyond Earth. Is it the same as life on Earth? Has it got the same genetic origins? Yes, exactly. That's, right. That's the next big question. Big question, yeah. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. But thank you, thank you, Adrian, for the question. Uh, potentially, yes, is the answer um, on both points. We we answered your question about uh, water planets last week. Uh, you're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. Express VPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined Express VPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and keying with a go. Space Nuts. 
And hello to all our social media space nutters uh, who follow us on Facebook, which you can do at facebook.com slash space nuts podcast. Uh, you can also join the space nut uh, nuts podcast group, which is a, a group of uh, space nut uh, <coughs> space nuts listeners that talk to each other on that particular platform, and uh, we're getting new members every week. And um, I think there's oh somewhere around a thousand people uh, in both groups, which is uh, just fantastic. And uh, if you're a YouTube follower, we are there. We are on uh, Instagram, and of course, we've got our own website at bites b i t e s z dot com slash space nuts, where you can uh, catch up on episodes episodes as well you can also um go to the space nuts shop which is getting more and more goodies uh into the um into the shelves so uh yeah uh you can take a look at all of that uh and of course that's um uh, that's one of the you know, several platforms where you can post questions to us as well now uh we have a question here fred from monique in sydney who uh, is asking about the moon uh, i have a question um, that was actually put to me in a discussion about the mining of the moon if we're planning on mining of the moon will the amounts of weight being brought back into our solar system a affect the mass of our planet because of we are accumulating weight that wasn't already found on the planet b have some kind of effect on the rotational position of our planet and c how would they even think about bringing um, these mined goods back down to earth as it is quite uh, already quite a dangerous mission getting humans back into our atmosphere uh thanks for your wonderful podcast i have seven episodes left left before i'm completely caught up and i plan to start again oh that's great awesome you might want to tell us what happened um uh, but that's um that's monique's uh three-part question about mining on the moon now we have touched on this before and the moon is in the news this week because there it seems to be a, a, a new space race to get back there and that involves the united states and china and india and japan i think or i can't think uh, of the players involved because the moon is being looked at as the platform for a mars mission uh, but the discussions surrounding the moon in terms of uh, you know potential mining exploits have certainly been around haven't they fred they have and it's you know, it's interesting to reflect on what they might find on the moon that's useful. Um, let's uh, go through Monique's questions because that's um, that, that sort of lets us talk about these things. So, um, if you're planning mining on the moon, what are you what are you going to look for? And the one that I suppose is um, high up in the popular imagination is the idea of mining helium-3, which is an isotope of helium. Uh, there's not much of it on the moon, but there's virtually none of it here on Earth. Um, but it could, and this has not yet been proven, but it could form the basis of clean nuclear energy. Uh, it uh, would allow you to do something called nuclear fusion mm. in a in a manner that doesn't release dangerous radiation. So you could have a desktop nuclear reactor. That's the, you know, that's certainly the dream of science fiction enthusiasts. And I think there's some physics behind it to support it as well. Um, helium-3 uh, mining, if that does happen, would be, it would have to come back to Earth uh, because that's where you want to use it. But the the amounts that are being would be being mined are, you know, microscopic compared with either the mass of the moon or the mass of the earth. And that would be true of anything that you were that you were digging up on the moon, because we humans, yeah, we can make big holes in the in the ground, some of which are very ugly indeed. Mm. But in terms of the dimensions of a planet or a satellite like the moon, they make no difference to the physical parameters. That they're more likely to affect the atmosphere, um, you know, with things like fossil fuel burning and things of that sort. That's definitely a global effect. But the the, the rotation of the planet, its orbit, and things of that sort have it has no effect at all. Um, so that actually covers off the first two of of Monique's. Uh, Questions. Yeah, I suppose you'd have to bring back a massive amount of material, like, you know, a, a, a huge percentage of the moon's mass would have to be removed and put on Earth to make any difference, I would imagine. Yeah, and that's... And that's and that would be physic physically impossible, yeah. yeah. It, 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 in terms of, 
you know, any kind of conventional sort of spaceflight. That's absolutely right. So what's more likely to happen is that what you mine on the moon, you use on the moon, uh, whether that's minerals for fabrication <clears throat> and maybe fabrication of spacecraft parts. This is one of the things that people envisage with asteroid mining, that if you find um, metal uh, metals on, on an asteroid, uh, then you can basically use those in space to build bits of spacecraft which always stay in space so you don't have to take things back to earth make them and then put them back into space mm. and like and like science fiction i envisage a time where mega spacecraft are going to be built in orbit yes that's right and i, I think i'd agree with that i think that's actually our our future in space in fact i am a great believer in large um, rotating self-gravitating uh, spacecraft for uh, for, for long-term habitation by humans. I think it's a much better idea than taking over Mars, for example, uh, and actually a bit more controllable. But that's a different story. Um, the, the, the other thing, though, and so, yes, that kind of covers off the, the final one of Monique's questions. How would they even think about bringing this mind good goods back to Earth as it's already a dangerous mission, getting humans back into our atmosphere? Absolutely right. So most of it you you use either in space or on the moon. But maybe the the more significant um, resource that's on the moon is actually water ice, uh, because that is itself a very, very valuable commodity in space. Uh, and water, we know, is exists in hydrated rocks on the moon, but also uh, in the moon's poles, there are, there are craters which never, ever see the sun and are known to have reserves of simply ice in the bottom of them. Now, um, if you could uh, use that ice um, to make water, which is a very simple process if you've got the heat, uh, you, you need solar radiation, of course, uh, but, but you can also um, electrolyze it, you can decompose it into uh, oxygen and hydrogen atoms, which gives you rocket fuel. So ice is a very valuable commodity for the idea of further exploration of the solar system, because the moon's gravity is much less than the Earth. If you can get the water from the moon, turn it into rocket fuel, you don't have to lift it off the Earth's surface. And that makes things much, much easier for journeys to Mars, for perhaps uh, future spacecraft to the asteroid belt and beyond. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, you know, it, it, it is a real possibility. And I think maybe in 20 or 30 years, we'll be seeing uh, water extraction from the poles of the moon uh, and that water being used to propel us to the outer regions of the solar system. Amazing. Because uh, you don't have to go to the moon to get rocket fuel. I've got a liquor cabinet and, you know, everybody's welcome. A different kind of rocket fuel. Yeah. And once, those, once social distancing <laughs> thing is over, we'll all be there, Andrew. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Um, Monique, thank you for the question. She, she was a bit worried that it would sound dumb, but uh, no, it opens up so much dialogue. And I suppose uh, one thing I did mention that, uh, her question prompted in my mind is um, is ownership. I mean, you can't just go up there and start digging holes, really. Uh, no one owns the moon and there's there's treaties in place that are supposed to protect all these things. But um, there are question marks over that at the moment because of the, of the race back to the moon for all these reasons. Although those are being dealt with, Andrew. So you, you're absolutely right that no nobody can own the moon. That's embodied in the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 uh, and its, you know, 1970s um, ad addenda. But um, the, there has been recent legislation passed, certainly in the USA, I think in the UK and also Lux Luxembourg, uh, which basically says that if you go to the moon, dig up something and bring it back, then it's yours. Uh, even though you can't stake a claim, you can't say, well, this bit of the moon's mine. Mm. Uh, you, but if you go and bring stuff back, then that belongs to you. And it's a pragmatic outcome based on, I guess, the, mainly the experience of, uh, of NASA bringing back 300 and what was it, 380 kilograms of rocks and soil from yeah. the moon in the 1960s and 70s. It's not uh, a new concept, Fred, because that was exactly how the gold rush worked. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so, and, and in a sense, that kind of sparks a space race because 
you can't lay claim to any of it, uh, but you can bring stuff back from it. So it means yeah. you've got to get there. And the same is true with asteroids as well. It, it would, you know, you'd have the same sort of deal with an asteroid. Mm. Fascinating. All right. Uh, uh, thank you, Monique. Uh, great question. Uh, I do have one more question without notice, Fred. And lo and behold, you're going to be shocked, but I can answer this one myself. Terrific. Yeah, Over. this one This one came from Twitter. While listening to episode 200, did I hear a willy wagtail at the start of the program? <laughs> yes, you did. You did indeed. And for those who are saying, what the hell is a willy wagtail? It's a small black and white uh, Australian native bird. It's an insectivore and it has a long, slender, rigid tail, which it wags and it's designed to stir up insects. So it wags its tail and then spins around and catches the insects. Um, and that's why we call it a willy wagtail. I don't know its biological name or zoological name. Uh, it's probably something much more complicated than willy wagtail. But, yeah, they've, they're a lovely little bird and they have this very nice sort of little twitter and uh, it's quite piercing. And, yes, our microphones or Fred's, I think it was, picked up uh, the willy wagtail yeah. in our last episode. There you go. There is one hangs out hangs around outside my study window, which is probably and they're the very very territorial. They, yeah, they are. They well, all go not- at anything, yeah. uh, which reminds me. The other day, last Friday, I was standing at the front of my place and I saw what I thought were five crows flying high in the sky. And as they got closer to me, I realised there were five wedge-tailed eagles. Now you never often see eagles in groups of more than two. So there were five of them. But my neighbourhood magpie saw them too and he went after them and he caught the tail ender. And then the funny thing was he came back all proud of himself, did a, did a victory swoop, believe it or not, Fred. But as he landed on the lamppost out the front of my house, he got attacked by a peewee. <laughs> it was just, I just stood there gobsmacked watching all these birds go at each other. It was just remarkable. Nature at its okay. best. It is fantastic. And just a, a postscript, uh, Ripidura leucophrys, I think is the way it's pronounced. <laughs> that is Willy Wagtail. I would have thought Willius Wagtailus would have been. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd be happier with that. <laughs> or, just, or just Fred. Yes. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, Fred, so much. It's been great fun as always. Good to talk, Andrew, and we'll speak again soon. We will indeed. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the Space Nuts team, as are you, and thank you so much for listening. And we do enjoy your uh, your comments and your questions and uh, any input at all uh, on whatever platform. Uh, and we do look forward to your company again. From me, Andrew Dunkley, signing off. We'll see you next week on another edition of the Space Nuts podcast. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.